Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor. Monday, we have a great deal of news to report today. Last Thursday, CMS proposed the 2019 proposed Medicare physician fee schedule. It was a story first reported by Rack Monitor. The changes are major, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch is standing by to report those changes. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by to report on recent developments involving the 340B drug program. We have two reports on the latest developments with case managers. Dr. Julia Ugarte Hopkins will report on structured interdisciplinary bedside rounds, and Kathleen Borchardt reports on placing case managers in the emergency departments. J. Paul Spencer has a report on the reinstated whistleblower case against Anthem, and Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley reports on the impact of the proposed Medicare physician fee schedule on outpatient therapy. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHirsch, who is making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Well, once again, CMS has surprised me by not releasing the 2019 outpatient proposed rule on Friday afternoon. But if there's one thing we all know about CMS is that they are anything but predictable. And speaking of that, I received a surprise correspondence from CMS last week that I'm going to describe in my second segment near the end of today's broadcast, so be sure to keep listening. But for this segment, I want to talk a little bit about the changes CMS has proposed in the 2019 Physician Rule. I'm sure every one of you has heard a doctor complain about the onerous documentation requirements imposed on them for billing evaluation and management visits. For example, If the patient is 95 years old and requires inpatient admission, the physician must obtain and document a family history. Does it really matter what that 95-year-old's mother died from? Well, it does to the people who write the coding guidelines, but not to anyone else. Now, before anybody gets too excited, let me point out that most of the proposed changes apply only to office visits and not to most hospital visits. So for many of you, this is mainly a preview of what may come in future years. So anyways, what is CMS proposing? Well, CMS will allow physicians to choose the visit level based solely on how long they spend with the patient, the complexity of their medical decision-making, or they can continue using the current system. In other words, doctors can bill for sick patients with the appropriate code without documenting superfluous information. But then it gets really confusing because CMS is also proposing to pay the same amount no matter what code the physician chooses. And that's really rather radical. Taking five minutes to assess a mole will pay the same as taking 25 minutes with a diabetic hypertensive patient who's having chest pain. But because most of our audience is not office-based and these are only proposals that are subject to revision, I don't want to go into great detail. Just know there's going to be a lot of analysis and hopefully a lot of commenting in the next 60 days. So why did CMS ignore hospital-based physicians? 
Well, they said that um, care in the emergency department and that care provided to hospitalized patients has, quote, unique clinical and legal issues and the potential intersection with hospital conditions of participation. So they decided they're just going to wait and see how this goes and then address those issues in future years. So for now, if that 95-year-old is hospitalized, the hospitalist better ask and document the patient's family history. And what about hospital-based docs? Can they ignore this all? Well, the one complicating factor is that when an observation patient is seen by a consultant, such as a cardiologist seeing a patient with chest pain at the request of the hospitalist, that cardiologist uses office visit codes to bill their hospital visit, as silly as that sounds. So in that case, these new coding rules will apply. Now that's gonna be really fun for doctors to figure out which set of codes to use and how to document. Now I'm gonna be back in a few minutes with a total knee replacement surprise for you all. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And here now is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Nancy, it's a big news day today, isn't it? It is a big news day, and I felt so bad for Dr. Hirsch that he didn't get his CMS proposed rule over the weekend to read. So I'm going to comment today on CMS 1693P, which is entitled Medicare Program Revision to Payment Policies Under the Physician Fee Schedule and Other Revisions to Part B for Calendar Year 2019 Medicare Shared Savings Program Requirements, Quality Payment Program, and Medicaid Promoting Interoperability Program. So the rule has something for everybody, it seems, in it. And even though the title said nothing about outpatient therapy, there's plenty in there. I'm going to speak to proposed elimination of functional limitation reporting, the payment differential for therapy assistance required under the Bipartisan Budget Act, proposed changes and modifiers to identify those services provided by assistance, as well as changes in the therapy modifiers, revision of practice um, expense inputs to um, two codes, 97124 and 97750, and then very briefly, the PTs and OTs as eligible providers under MIPS. And I hope everybody will breathe a huge sigh of relief um, CMS is proposing removing functional limitation reporting. So since January 1st of 2013, regardless of setting, all providers of outpatient therapy, PTOT and speech, have been required to include functional status as a non-payable reportable code. Um, listeners that have been with us for a long time may recollect that CMS had a substantial amount of problems implementing this. Uh, they gave us a six-month implementation period. When they said they turned their system on, they really didn't turn it on. When they finally turned it on, stuff was deleted. On some claims, you had a bill of one-cent charge. On other claims, you had a bill zero. All in all, um, the analysis by CMS over functional limitation reporting showed that only 93% of those reported when an evaluation code was turned in, and 12 to 16% reported at a progress reporting interval, and a paltry 36% of episodes reported discharge data. So clearly it wasn't working, and I call this without a trace by CMS. They're going to delete, they're proposing to delete the codes and delete all references in the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual, the Claims Processing Manual, and all other references related to goals. So hallelujah, please join me in saying 
CMS did something good on that. Next up is um, proposed payment reductions for outpatient PT and, and OT services furnished by therapy assistance. And CMS uh, called for this in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 as part of the trade in exchange for eliminating the therapy cap. And as promised, uh, this rule has actually set up a proposal for the use of a therapy modifier when services are performed in whole or in part by a physical therapist assistant or an occupational therapy assistant. CMS proposes to establish two new modifiers to separately identify the PT and OT services that are furnished in whole or part. And the modifiers will be put in place on January 1st, 2020, but the payment reduction will not take place till the next year. So now there'll be uh, actually five therapy modifiers. And because the previous GP, GO, and GN modifiers were related to the profession, PTOT or speech, those are being modified to indicate that they're related to physical therapists or occupational therapists or speech language pathologists. So stay tuned for that. We know that the therapy industry is going to be uh, taking umbrage with that. They don't want to see a payment reduction. Good news, the practice expense input to um, 97124 and 97750 are going to be changed. Apparently, in calendar year 2018, CMS inadvertently assigned too many minutes of clinical labor time um, in certain categories of practice expenses, therefore overvaluing the dollar amount of the code. And for therapists that uh, typically bill massage therapy, which therapists don't, they bill manual therapy, this will be good because there were many therapists speaking to why bill manual therapy when massage therapy pays more. All right, and the next one and my last comment today, which is a, um, not a surprise comment, one that was expected, but some challenges ahead. Physical therapy and occupational therapy have identified as eligible clinicians under the MIPS program. They had been excluded for the past two years as eligible participants. So it would be begin effective reporting in 2019 with the um, reporting mechanisms that are going to be available. And then the payment reductions or bonuses eligible in 2021. We're going to be having a lot more on this coming up in Monitor Mondays in the future. This is only a proposed rule. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and the CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, J. Paul Spencer, Kathleen Borchardt, and Dr. Julia Dugarte Hopkins. This is Monday, July 16th. It's Prime Day, and you're listening to Monitor Monday Standby. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHIMA has more than 20 coding experts currently working to review all code updates in their entirety, and they are creating webinar training to ensure that you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties, including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahema.org slash code updates. 
we're back in a program note. Be sure to register for a very timely webcast. It's on the rules, the risks, the nuances of providing incident to insured services. This webcast comes your way this Thursday, 1.30 p.m., and it features Shannon DeConda. The contentious 340B program is back in the news. Here now to report on all the developments affecting 340B is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. So what's the latest in this long string of developments? 340B seems to be constantly changing and highly debated on multiple levels. As you can recall, November 2017, the final rule from CMS decreased the payment reimbursements for 340B participating hospitals by almost 30%. Obviously, hospitals were in an uproar. There's a trifecta currently brewing. This, uh, this 340B requires pharmaceutical manufacturers to provide covered outpatient drugs to certain eligible hospitals. Now, this effectual 30% reduction became effective January 1st, 2018. Immediately, the American Hospital Association filed a lawsuit that is currently pending at the Court of Appeals at, for the D.C. District. There is also current congressional bills that are pending in Congress that purport to reverse the decrease in reimbursement rates. We also concurrently have Trump's blueprint, which, is, if allowed through executive order, reinforces the, reinf the reimbursement rate decrease. So we've got three different avenues that are just swirling around in the news right now. And even as late and even just last week, HHH Secretary Alex Azar had a private meeting wanting to standardize the 340B drug discounts, cutting it to 20% of the list price. Again, the, the hospitals association, the court case that is pending, they had oral arguments just this past May 2018. And if the court case, if the hospital association is uh, wins on this, it could overrule any congressional bill or any executive order. So the litigation is definitely going to stop the potential bills. On July 3rd, 2018, the House Energy and Commerce Committee unveiled a number of draft 340B reform bills, and it's about seven pending bills. Last week, July 11th, they had another meeting discussing these bills. The biggest bill is 4392, and it has 197 sponsors. We totally look forward to what's going to be happening with 340Bs. Who knows if the litigation will prevail, or if Congress will prevail, or if Trump will prevail. We shall see. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. Here now with the latest news on a reinstated whistleblower case against Anthem is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, as we know from OIG examinations of risk adjustment data over the past five years, many times when Medicare Advantage organizations are reporting their risk adjustment data, we find that there is an over-reporting of severity and acuity with regard to those ratings. 
a recent Ninth Circuit court decision uh, from early last week uh, has revived a whistleblower false claims act suit uh, that accused Anthem and as well as other Medicare Advantage plans of overstating the medical risk levels of their beneficiaries in order to reap more Medicare funding. Now, uh, understanding, of course, that when a Medicare Advantage organization can prove that they have uh, a certain uh, level of acuity and illness in their population, they get paid a bonus from the Medicare program for treating a, a uh, profoundly sicker population than some of the other carriers. Uh, this, this particular suit was filed not by a person who was employed by Anthem, however. This was a person who was a compliance officer for an in-home health assessment company uh, that uh, they had who accused the advantage plans of using some of his data as well as some of their claims data uh, to make a determination that they were treating patients who were actually sicker than they were. This suit was actually brought forward five years ago and has been bouncing back and forth in the courts since then. And with the Ninth Circuit decision from last week, they have now decided that uh, this suit can go forward based on some other decisions that have been brought forward, stating that uh, uh, defend when defendants are playing uh, a role in an alleged fraud conspiracy, a complaint doesn't need to distinguish between any single one carrier. Now, this suit is so old that Anthem was still known as WellPoint at the time, uh, and there were this was only done in front of a three-judge panel. Uh, it has yet to be determined whether Anthem is going to appeal the decision. I would fully expect that Anthem is going to put forward an appeal of the Ninth Circuit's decision in order to get uh, to a, uh, a decision in front of the full appeals court. And then at that point, we would probably see this advance. But it's a very interesting finding in yet an, and yet another nail in the coffin of Medicare risk adjustment. And we'll be following this story as it develops. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. I was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Our lead story this morning is about the positive impact of case management in the emergency department. We have two reports. Dr. Julia Ugarte Hopkins is standing by to report on structured interdisciplinary bedside rounds. And Kathy Borchardt reports on placing case managers in the emergency departments. We begin with Kathy Borchardt. Good morning, Kathy. Welcome to Monitor Money. So what has been your experience as an RN case manager? The placement of registered nurse case managers in the emergency department with a focus on determining appropriate admission status and making status recommendations to admitting physicians has proven to be very successful at Waukesha Memorial Hospital in Wisconsin, a community hospital of 301 inpatient beds, inpatient beds and my work home. Um, I am entering my eighth year as a RN case manager at Waukesha Memorial Hospital, with the past four years being assigned to the emergency department and observation unit. Case management in the ED was started here in 2013 primarily with the goal of reducing unnecessary admissions and readmissions. At that time, the focus of the case manager was discharge planning, scrutinizing every potential ED admission and identifying those patients who could be discharged to a skilled nursing facility for long-term placement or subacute rehabilitation. 
At that time, social workers were no longer used in the emergency department for discharge planning and were reassigned to the inpatient units. With the introduction of the two-midnight rule by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in October of 2013 and the opening of Waukesha Memorial Hospital's observation unit in July of 2015, admission status became the primary focus of the ED case manager, and it remains as such. Um, Discharge planning evolved into a secondary role, providing an additional layer of support for the emergency department social workers. Waukesha Memorial Hospital has a very focused approach to admission status review and recommendation. Every emergency department to hospital admission is analyzed by the case manager for correct admission status. After reviewing the emergency department documentation and applying MCG criteria, the case manager then makes the status recommendation to the admitting physician or advanced practice provider. In some instances, a call may be necessary to discuss the plan of care and anticipated length of stay, particularly when considering the CMS two-midnight rule. Gathering admission data in the ED can be particularly challenging due to incomplete ED ED notes, busy physicians or pending labs or imaging studies. Sometimes one must make a judgment with just the admitting complaint, available past medical history, and available labs and vital signs. If the admitting physician has not yet examined the patient, he or she may only have a tentative treatment plan or length of stay in mind. Thank you, CMS, for the two-midnight rule. Efficiency in determining admission status relies on the close collaboration between the ED physicians, admitting physician operations coordinator who is involved in bed placement, and case manager. This level of coordination helps in the following manners. It ensures appropriate and timely bed placement, better ED quality measures, and ultimately greater patient satisfaction. We have a number of helpful resources available to determine a successful admission status recommendation. Our internal physician advisor assists with difficult cases, provides education, and promotes collaboration between physicians and case managers. For after-hours cases or when the physician advisor is not available, We utilize an external physician advisory service. We also have a reference list of the most common observation-appropriate diagnoses, and we rely on MCG admission criteria. The emergency department and observation unit case manager's day does not slow down at 5 p.m. Along with keeping a continued watchful eye on evening admissions, another evening task is to review all patients in outpatient status and those with observation to ensure that status is correct and when necessary to contact physicians for status change or observation service orders. The case managers also deliver Medicare outpatient observation notice letters as needed. Uh, The benefits of having case managers in the emergency department include uh, the ED case managers reduce costly and timely consuming Medicare self-denials. For example, Waukesha Memorial saw a 50% decrease in initial emergency emergency department status-related self-denials, and 10.7% decrease in overall self-denials in the past two quarters. Self-denials are costly not only in administrative hours and reduced Medicare reimbursement, but also in considering patient satisfaction. Emergency department case managers also reduce unnecessary admissions and readmissions. Um, They also are able to deliver the moon and advanced beneficiary notices in the emergency department plus provide proactive patient education and reduction of post-admission grievances. Emergency emergency department case managers benefit the patient by ensuring correct admission status and capturing the first inpatient midnight. 
my experience as part of the emergency department case management team leads me to suggest the following considerations if you embark on the same journey. First of all, carve out a workstation or office space in what might be an already crowded emergency department arena. Keep in mind that emergency department staff, like all of us, can be quite protective of their territory. Also keep in mind that education of physicians, both ED and admitting, and ED staff regarding the role of the ED case manager is crucial for optimal collaboration and success. You should build rapport with emergency department and admitting physicians, ED staff, and ancillary staff. This is also imperative. For example, we found that having quick access to willing PTOT staff for stat evaluations in the ED was very helpful. Remember that attributes and skill sets for a successful ED case manager include a detail-oriented and analytical personality, clinical experience and confidence in clinical judgment, excellent written and verbal communication skills, exceptional problem-solving skills, the ability to make quick decisions in a fast-paced environment, and strong knowledge of MCG or interqual admission criteria, depending on which resource you use. In summary, the case for implementing an ED case manager is strong and the benefits are abundant. My experience at Waukesha Memorial Hospital as an ED case manager has been challenging, fulfilling, and confidence elevating. I encourage any RN case manager to take on the challenge. As a manager, if reducing costly admissions, readmissions, and self-denials while increasing patient satisfaction and supporting appropriate hospital utilization efforts is, com is something you want to have in your repertoire, I suggest joining the ED case management movement. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Kathy. That was Kathy Borchardt. Kathy is an RN case manager at Waukesha Memorial Hospital in Wisconsin. We continue with our reporting on the latest developments taking place in case management. We are joined now by Dr. Julia Hugarty Hopkins. Good morning, Dr. Hopkins. Good morning. Last month, I attended the annual conference for the Case Management Society of America. Along with hearing some more success stories like my team member, Kathy Borcher, just reported on about case management in the emergency department, I also heard great things about structured interdisciplinary bedside rounding, or SIBR. Presented by folks from Cleveland Clinic, they immediately identified for the audience something I bet many in our Monitor Monday audience have found to be true. Putting them into place is incredibly, incredibly challenging. Multiple interruptions, no consistent start time, and lack of structure about what needs to be addressed and who will follow up on items identified can lead to a quick death of any bedside rounding initiative. To counteract these pitfalls, the speakers targeted the following points as imperative to be set into motion. Number one, rounds are nurse-led and take place at the patient's bedside. Number two, they follow a specific structure to discuss plan of care, determine medical and patient priorities, and coordinate transition from one level of care to the next. Number three, brevity is a must. Along with the round starting at the same time every day, even if a discipline is not yet present. The core goal of FIBR is increased understanding about the patient's progression during the hospitalization and efficient planning to address the patient's needs in preparation for discharge. This results in improved outcomes for the patients and the hospital. When patients and their caregivers understand the medical reasons for hospitalization and the goals of care, both in and out of the hospital setting, they become more active participants in the recovery process. 
Likewise, proper management of patient care through team collaboration and communication decreases avoidable day delays and length of stay, both of which lead to cost savings for the hospital. Clearly, the success of a health system depends greatly on the various facets of case management which touch patients at every point in the continuum of care. Physician advisors are intimately involved in case management and utilization efforts, which is why one announcement made at the conference makes perfect sense. Official collaboration between CMSA and the American College of Physician Advisors is now underway, and plans are in the works for how the two institutions will work together to educate members in a well-rounded, organized fashion. More great things are on the horizon. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Juliet. That was Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins, and you can read her story about structured interdisciplinary rounds on Rack Monitor's homepage. We have a lot of news to report, and once again, here's Dr. Hirsch. You know, I thought I was done talking about total knee replacements, but I'm not. Um, after my article last week, I was contacted by several providers with inappropriate denials. And surprisingly, I received an email from Steve Rubio, a director at the CMS office that oversees the QIOs. And from the tone of the email, I don't think CMS is happy that the QIOs have been ignoring CMS regulations. Now, Mr. Rubio asked me to put out a request for hospitals who have had similar denials to contact him so his staff can review the denial. To be clear, the hospital should still discuss the case with the QIO as part of the probe and educate process and proceed with a formal appeal if warranted. This review by CMS will not result in an overturn of a denial in and of itself. Now, this is a very unique opportunity, so I'm asking everyone to use this gift with great discretion. Carefully evaluate your denial and see if the patient was truly at high risk, that you had a pre-admission um, pre-admission admission order, pre-surgical admission order, excuse me, and that the risk was clearly documented in the chart preoperatively. If that's present, send the claim number, not their Medicare ID number, a summary of the case and details of any discussions you've had with the QIO to stephen.rubio at cms.hhs.gov. Now be sure there's no PHI in the email. You most likely won't hear back from him, but your submission is gonna contribute to ensuring that the QIOs are doing their jobs properly and that you can get paid for admissions when it's appropriate. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hurst. That's gonna be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I wanna thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Kathleen Borchard, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, whom you just heard, Dr. Julia Ugarte Hopkins, J. Paul Spencer. I hope you're going to join me this Thursday for that very timely and important webcast on Incident 2 and Split Shared Services at Peter Shanna DeConda. I want to thank you again for being with us. We had a lot of questions come in today. We don't have an opportunity today to answer those questions during this live broadcast but we will make every effort to answer those questions this week. Thanks very much for being with us. Go out and have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.